Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Today's guest has a long list that I hope I can get through and hopefully don't burn away too much time because we have so much to talk about. So first of all, he's a four-time provincial champion here in Ontario. He won nationals twice. He went to the USHP event where they won. He's won Canada Games. He won the 2018 Ken Davies Award. He's been on our junior national team, and he's currently one of the few Canadians competing in the NCAA. Please welcome Justin Louie from Stanford University. Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, that was a that was a long list. So let's start with the obvious one. Um, how did you get involved with volleyball? You grew up in the Pickering area, right? So you would have been a Derm Attack guy. Yes, I did. I played for Derm Attack my entire club career. Um, it was actually funny. My sister was the one who sort of got me into volleyball. Initially, I played soccer for all my life, but then she started when she was fourteen, so I would have been twelve. And I love volleyball so much, so I tried the house league program at Durham Attack. And I continued to love it, so I was asked to actually try out for the rep team by Scott Burroughs, who was the director, or I think he still is the director, of Derm Attack. And I think, I guess, he liked, what I, he liked what I was doing on the court, and so they put me on the 14 team, and then from there I've just been playing with Derm Attack all my life, and I've loved every moment of it. Now, I'm, some, I'm sure some listeners are hearing that and they go, oh, that makes sense that you played for one club. But in your era of Ontario, it seemed like teams were willing to scramble and guys were willing to move around. So uh, with you being in Pickering and, and driving distance to a lot of clubs, what kind of made you want to stay with Durham Attack your whole career? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing was that there was a core group of guys that stayed with Durham Attack since we've been 13, so since we were 13 you, And... I loved every one of those guys and playing with them. And we have been successful since 14U. And I think that carrying that same sort of culture and the same group of guys being able to play with one another, to love every single moment of every game was definitely very special. And I wouldn't trade that for a championship or anything else like that. So that's why I stuck with Dermis Hack all those years. It's just because I got the opportunity to play with some of my best friends who I still talk to to this day, even though we're you know, on completely different sides of the continent, but it was such a great experience having to play with my best friends alongside me. And I think that's why I stayed with Durham Attack all those years. Awesome. So go ahead and name drop a few because uh, our show loves a good name drop. So who on your team uh, <laughs> are, are you friends with closely or anyone go on to also play post-secondary? Uh, yeah. So I was very close with Matthew Lee, who is playing at Waterloo. I still actually play uh, Beach Terminson, even though we're like two small pair, but, uh, I still, I still consider him one of my best friends. I played with Tristan Morris Fraser, who, um, I think he did play for Ryzen, but not so much anymore. Um, Liam Cameron, who's playing at Western, um, Isaac Northcott, who isn't playing anymore, but still a great player. And, um, so many, so many others. Nice. And I believe one of your early coaches was Mike Richardson and anyone who knows him knows he's a pretty high energy guy. <laughs> Uh, anything that stands out in your mind that he kind of built like a love of volleyball, not only with you, but uh, again, the, the core of the team that you guys had? Yeah. So one thing that Mike really preached, um, and it was funny because he was sort of this way before, but in 14U, there was this new rule called the fair play rule. And it basically stated that, um, let's say you have a group of 12 guys on a team, then six play the first match and that means that six the other six players must play the second match and so he was really big on that and i know a lot of the team even though we were 14 we still really wanted to win so we kind of just wanted to keep like you know the top six guys on and the top six guys on in the second set as well 
But Mike really wanted us to develop as players. And you could tell from his enthusiasm for the game that he wanted all of us to develop and not just, you know, to win a tournament here or there or a game here and there. And so he would put on um, all six at the start and then all six at the end or at the second set, and it would just be even. And I think that's what helped really build the culture with our Derma Attack team and why we were so successful is because we got to play with everyone and everyone got an opportunity to show their stuff, um, which is why I think we all developed as great volleyball players. Now, it is a, a very competitive age group as I kind of look through the results. So what was the mood around the team? Because I think once you win one provincials, you're on the map. But once you win two, like, was there all of a sudden distractions or were the parents kind of getting involved about, like, putting pressure on the club to win the third, to win the fourth? Like, did the mood ever change? Or were you guys just such a close group that it was just show up and let's play and have fun and be competitive and intense and all that stuff? Uh, well, it was definitely a change because... Um, I think it was after our 15th year, so after we won our second provincial championship, we had a coaching switch. So Mike Richardson was our coach for 13, 14, 15. But then from 16, 17, 18, we had Mike Sleen with Ian Ebbett and Nikos Shalaris as our like assistant coaches. Um, so that was definitely different because Ian and Mike gave or Mike Sleen gave a new perspective than Mike Richardson. And, but I thought it was pretty good to have because the core group of guys definitely wanted to stay together. And I think having that new perspective of coaching um, just sort of motivated us to even prove ourselves more. And once we did that, I think we still came out and won two more provincial championships following that. So even though there was a few personnel changes throughout the years, I think that the core group of guys that sort of came together, it just felt like automatic and that we could do anything with that core group. Nice. And anything stand out in your mind with what uh, Ian, who's currently a McMaster, or we'd love to get Selena on the show, a guy who's won uh, an OUA championship every year he played at U of T there. So anything stand out in mind as far as what they could bring to kind of get you ready for the next level? Yeah. Well, they were, it's funny, they were actually two very different personalities. Mike was sort of um, this mellow guy, and he wasn't like the one yelling at us during the games or anything. He was sort of giving tactical feedback and technical feedback that would help us. And then Ewan was more of like the competitive, but also very, very mentally aware guy. And so he helped us develop our mental game going from 16, 17, 18 new. And I think that was huge because when you're younger, it's more about, you know, physicality and, you know, basic ball control. But when we approached 16, 17, 18s, we needed more of that mental side to help us develop our game and to really clutch out in those um, big moment times. So Ian definitely helped with that. But I think having both of those perspectives on the court and having those as two coaches definitely helped us develop into the team that we were. You mentioned like the OVA rule about fair play and some other things. So another OVA rule that must have impacted you was no libero until a certain age group. So did you really want to be a libero and you kind of had to hit or was it the other way where you enjoyed playing in the front row, but once the libero was introduced, you kind of knew that was your destiny? Well, for so for 14s, 15s, and 16s, I would say I was below average height, but I was still capable of hitting on that sort of lower net. So I really enjoyed playing left side for that time being. Um, but once 17 you hit and all the players were like 6'3 and above, I definitely could not compete anymore at a 5'10 left side hitter. Um, so I graciously accepted that libero position because I knew I wouldn't be able to compete at that level in hitting. And I guess as a libero, I felt that that's where my future was. And I've loved every moment of it since because 
I just get to pass and defend and hype my teammates up, which is honestly the best part of being a libero. Awesome. Awesome. So when did you start to look around about uh, kind of going at the next level? Because obviously in the club world, you were very competitive. Like when did trying out for Team Ontario that would lead to Canada Games kind of get on your radar? And when did you start looking at, you know, playing volleyball to, at a secondary level? I guess it all started when I attended the high performance tryout for Team Ontario when I was uh, 15. And I think that was the year they were trying to get a lot of younger kids involved in the Team Ontario program just so that they could build up this program to the, towards the Canada Games, which was a few years later. Um, but yeah, that was my first time ever playing libero in like a, an official capacity. And once I played that position, I knew that was where I was meant to be. And every year since, I've sort of been with Team Ontario in that libero capacity. Nice. And what was Canada Games like for you? Obviously a very talented group. Uh, that event gets a lot of hype. Did it feel different being there and, and, you know, being around other provinces? I don't think your cycle had the opening and closing ceremonies. I think you just had the closing ceremonies. But obviously living in the Athletes Village and all the other athletes around, like, did, was that one feel different than, say, a, a U.S. high-performance event or national championships? Yeah, it was definitely different. I mean, so the closing ceremonies, I'll just talk about that quickly. But the closing ceremonies were so cool. We got to go into this like, massive football stadium and there were like um, fans and parents and people all around the stadium just covering the entire thing. And we got to rock out with the other Team Ontario athletes who were there. And it was like this huge event and a huge ceremony. It was pretty awesome to witness. It felt like, you know, like a, like a mini Olympics within Canada. So it definitely was very special. And then playing at the Canada Games was just even greater because so actually one of the matches that I remember very well was playing against Manitoba because that's where the Canada Games was held was in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And when we played against Manitoba, the stands filled with like thousands and thousands of people. And it was such a interesting and unique experience and environment to play in because I've never been exposed to that many people screaming and yelling and cheering. Um, I mean, not for us, but... <laughs> uh, it was still pretty fun to be in that atmosphere and to play with my teammates in that environment. So you being a Team O guy, you would have played against, uh, I guess, the same players from different provinces during like National Team Challenge Cup. Could, could you tell that they were bringing their A game for Canada Games or did Canada Games kind of bring a distraction that a few guys kind of folded up even because such such more attention is on them, right? Well, for us, it was kind of unusual. We had a very different team. Um, because in the past we had a few players that were sort of our key starters, like Alexander, uh, Seconda, Tom Sora. Um, but they were not available that year to play in the Canada game. So we definitely had like some new personnel come in and step into these amazing roles where they were just, you know, doing their job as part of the foundation of this team. Um, and I know other teams, uh, definitely were bringing their A game. They had some of the top players in their provinces playing. And so when we arrived at the HP tournament, uh, we got to see a little bit of that that summer because we saw each team playing their starters, maybe sitting a few players. But then when we got to the Canada Games, it was like a whole new thing where everyone was bringing their A game, everyone was ready to go, and you could tell that everyone was just ready to win. Nice. So... At what point did you know that you could play at post-secondary? Like, I think some of our listeners will hear that you're at Stanford and think that makes sense with your resume, but it's still pretty unusual for an Ontario guy to get an NCAA deal, especially to a California school, right? So 
what kind of started that process? Uh, did they identify you? Were you speaking to coaches or a recruiter? Like what was your, how, how soon did you start the recruiting process? And then what did it kind of look like down the stretch? Uh, yeah, so I started, okay, well, so I wanted to go to a very academic prestigious school in the States, just starting from the beginning of high school. So at that point, I was kind of unsure if I was going to play volleyball, but I felt like it could potentially happen. So I decided in grade nine to send an email and some video to the Stanford coaches. And during that year, I got no response. So grade 10, I did the same thing, sent email, video, just an update of who I was and what I was doing. Uh, Still no response. Grade 11, did the same thing, sent video, email, still no response. And then finally, it was... Um, the summer of my grade 11 year going into my grade 12 year was when I was playing at the HP tournament and the Stanford assistant coach was there and he saw me perform during the entire tournament. And I guess he liked what he saw. Cause that's when they started to officially recruit me and start talking to me. But apparently I found out just recently that they had actually received all of my emails and all the video and they were like watching me and watching my progress as I was going through the years so they kind of knew who I was before. Um, so I guess I guess for listeners just keying in right now, I guess one of the big things for young athletes if they want to play post-secondary or in the NCAA is to just get started on the recruiting process early because I think that's what definitely helped me get a leg up in that recruiting process was just that they were exposed to who I was and like what kind of style of play I had. And then, yeah, so going from – the end of the summer of my grade 11 year going to my grade 12 year that's when I finally took an official visit and they liked what they saw and I definitely liked the team and the coaches and the atmosphere and obviously it's California so you can't really go wrong there um but yeah that's sort of how it came to be and how I got here at Stanford yeah let's let's pull on that for a second so you mentioned you did a lot of it and you identified schools but um you mentioned academics were important. I think that's important to go into because some athlete might be listening and they might look at the schedule and say, oh, I want to play at this school because they're competitive, but they might not even have the same program you want to study and stuff, right? So um, how did you really identify Stanford and who else were you looking at when you were approaching schools to kind of identify yourself and what other kind of things did you look for for a university? So I was approached um, by a few schools in the States. Um, mainly Stanford and Princeton were recruiting me, but then also Pepperdine was, but then I went on an official visit to Pepperdine, got to see their campus. I liked the team, like the coaches and everything, but they didn't actually have an engineering program, which is something that I really wanted to pursue academically speaking. So once I sort of keyed that in, I told them that the connection to Pepperdine just wasn't for me and they understood. Um, and then just going to Stanford and Princeton, I sort of mapped out what I wanted to do, what major I wanted to pick, and how I wanted to approach my academics along with my athletic career at the college. Um, and I think doing that ahead of time was definitely useful because I do not regret my decision coming here. And I'm very glad that I was able to pursue my academic and athletic aspirations at the same time. Now, was there any youth sports schools you were considering as well, or you knew that uh, for level of ball and the academics you wanted to study that, like, Stanford was the spot for you? Um, Well, yeah, there were definitely uh, basically tons of OUA schools that I was interested in just because that's my home and it it felt familiar and I wanted to, you know, stay connected with everyone. I was also recruited by UBC, 
And honestly, I love the play. I love Vancouver, and I love the team there and the coaches as well. And UBC was a great atmosphere, and they were definitely high on my choices for where I wanted to attend school. But ultimately, I kind of knew I wanted to go to Stanford, and it sort of sparked because when I was younger, I watched um, uh, Eric Shoji, who was a libero that went to Stanford and who's now on the U.S. national team, and I saw what he was doing there, and it kind of just like inspired me and motivated me that that's kind of like the dream school I wanted. And I guess everything just happened to work out just with academics and athletics, which is why I was really pushing for Stanford as my number one choice. Nice. And, and what stands out in your mind when you arrived on campus? Were this, was everybody pretty friendly uh, as a Canadian kid uh, coming in to kind of grab the libero spot? Or uh, what was it like as far as getting in there with the vets and coaches? And uh, I believe you redshirted your first year, right? <laughs> yes, I did. So, yeah, what's your first yeah, impression uh, when you arrived? Yeah, so I was actually the only person recruited in my class. So it was just me as the class of 2022 for Stanford men's volleyball. And that was definitely weird because, I mean, for a normal NCAA school, they normally recruit four plus people each year. Um, so it was weird to just be the only freshman. But the team openly embraced me and welcomed me with open arms. And I'm so thankful for that because... Uh, especially the seniors, definitely made it feel like home. Um, and I felt that Stanford was just, like, the Stanford team was just like a family more than just a team. And I can definitely feel that with these new freshmen coming in this year. Um, it's sort of just like a brotherhood among us. And the coaches definitely helped in that transition, making sure that I'm acquainted with how everything runs at Stanford and being a, a sole member of the team. And then... Uh, yeah, so regarding my redshirt season last year, um, so I came in, there was me and Kyle D'Agostino as the two liberos, and so Kyle was a fifth-year senior, and he's an amazing volleyball player, like, like absolutely incredible. I think he'll be playing in the Olympics soon, but uh, so he was the libero as the fifth-year senior, sort of the leader of the team, so I kind of knew coming in that I like the cards were stacked against me, but I still, I feel like I showed who I was, what I could do. And I definitely thought I had a uh, potential to be, you know, coming in multiple times during the year, but ultimately I decided to redshirt, uh, mainly because of three reasons. So one was because I was the only person in my class and I knew that the next class, there would be a ton of really talented athletes, which there are right now. So if I redshirted, I'd be able to join that class and play with them for four years and the second thing was because it just kind of worked out academically. Right now, I'm able to pursue a bachelor's and a master's degree in five years, um, which I think is pretty awesome here at this institution. So I'm able to do that. And the third thing was it just kind of correlated with how I felt because I wouldn't be playing that much uh, on the court in my freshman year. So I decided to redshirt. And now I am able to start with this Stanford team. Awesome. Awesome. And, and looking at your year, uh, looks like you guys are off to a, a few good battles at the start of the year, a few wins, a few losses, but I noticed you've already got to play UCLA. So what was it like being across the net from Cole, who you grew up battling with, and also another fellow Canadian in Danon? Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, seeing Canadians on the other side is definitely inspiring because it's sort of like uh, like solidarity within our country. Like We're coming down here, we're talented athletes playing in the, in the NCAA at pretty awesome schools like Stanford, UCLA. 
Um, so it was nice to see them across the court. It was actually funny. I was like playing at Coloso last night and I like, he, we sort of looked locked eyes during the match and just said, Hey, um, so it was nice to sort of have that friendliness on the court, but at the same time, we're also competitors and opponents. So it was honestly just a great game and uh, it was just a great a game and good spirit. So it was definitely fun to play against some fellow Canadians there. So Phil, myself, and the listeners in, and just what a typical week is for your schedule because uh, NCAA men's volleyball, there is quite a lot of travel involved. Like I think Hawaii comes to you this year, but obviously there'll be years that you'll have to fly to them or uh, Lewis, for example, is across the country or BYU is out of state. So how, how do you guys manage the practice time, the travel, academics, and everything that kind of goes into being an, a varsity athlete at Stanford? Yeah, so it's pretty tough with managing courses and uh, the athletic schedule. So ahead of time, we sort of have to plan for the year our courses, like which courses we're going to take in the fall, winter, and so on, uh, just so that we know how much we can handle during season and out of season. Um, So that's like sort of one thing we have to be aware of. And then honestly, the second thing is just getting ahead as much as we can. We'll try and find, as like Stanford student athletes, we try and find um, moments in the travel period where we have time to study, to get caught up on lectures and things like that. So it's definitely a struggle, but I think that like as a team, we're pretty organized and prepared with what we know we have to get done both athletically and academically. And we prepare for that ahead of time so that we are ready to play when we play and study when we have to study. Um, So just balancing those two is definitely tough, but I think we manage it pretty well. Nice. And is there any uh, silliness or making fun of that you take from the California guys being a Canadian? Is there anything that you do that they just find (laughs) hilarious? (laughs) Yeah, that's actually, (laughs) it's funny that you mentioned that. So one thing, that I always say is sorry. Um, and I don't know if that's just me or a Canadian thing, but it's definitely the Canadian stereotype. So every time I say sorry on the court, they always like make fun of me. And apparently I have a Canadian accent, even though I don't hear it, but they do because most of them are from California. So whenever I say sorry, they, they kind of like mock me and be like, Oh, sorry. And then I don't know. It's just like a f- friendly joke between teammates, but it's definitely some joke ass around being Canadian. Um, especially last night, it was sort of, they were like saying how it's like, um, like it's like playing against the uh, Canadian national team. Cause like you have Cole and Danon on the other side. So yeah, they make some jokes like that, but it's all in good spirits. Nice. And was there anything that caught you off guard about California? Like any, any surfer lifestyle that you just weren't used to that was totally stereotypical of what we would think of them? Yeah, I guess. I mean, we're not near the water, so there isn't so much that surfer vibe. But everything um, in terms of travel, people go on bikes, scooters, uh, skateboards, things like that. Um, So I guess that's sort of the epitome of what I'd say is California, just being able to go outside at any point of the year. Like right now, it's like 15 degrees outside. Um, It's beautiful. So sort of that, that idea that California is sunny all the time, I guess, holds true. Um, And then a few things. Uh, they say they also say a few things that kind of catch me off guard. Sometimes, like people say "gnarly" or like "dude" a lot, which I don't normally hear um, with my Canadian teammates so much as I hear with people from Stanford. So yeah, those are a few things. Nice, nice. I'm glad we could take a segue from volleyball just to learn about that. I always find that hilarious about the Canadians. We get punished for things like accents that I, none of us think we have them until you meet other people, right? So. <laughs> 
So with you being a single libero on your squad, I guess there's no silliness going on with the two libero thing, right? Where we might see that at other schools, but you get to play both uh, when you guys are receiving and serving, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm fortunate this year. I'm the only libero. Um, so that's sort of been my position recently. And yeah, I haven't been able, or I haven't had to switch from serve receive to defense. So what would you do to kind of prep for, for a big opponent? Like, let us know about, uh, any advice you would give to maybe a younger libero about what kind of tactical things you like to look for when prepping for an opponent? Yeah, I guess the biggest advice I can give for younger athletes is just to watch as much video as possible. Because, honestly, that's what I do in my free time is just watch video, whether it's about your opponent or just, you know, international volleyball. Just sort of watching video helps you develop an intuition for how the game runs and how you can sort of exploit the game's weaknesses, I guess. Uh, So one thing I do when I watch video is just completely watch servers and attackers' tendencies. So, basically, I watch, like, when they're in certain situations, what they'll do. Um, sort of what their attack style is, how their their arm, shoulder, wrist all moves as one. Um, that's sort of like a more complex thing. But just watching for players' tendencies and watching as much video as I can is definitely the most helpful thing I can give to any younger player because that's what I did when I was younger. I just loved watching volleyball, and I feel like that has definitely helped me build a strong intuition for the game um, and just allowed me to be uh, the best libero that I can be. So we've been lucky enough to have a few middle blockers on the show, and they've talked about their eye sequencing. I was wondering, as a libero, are you doing like a similar ball setter, ball hitter, or how early do you like to pick up on the hitter and any like body language tells that you just kind of spoke about? Again, this is more like situational and contextual, but first I'd watch like height of pass, where the pass is located. So if it passes off the net, then obviously they're not going to be able to run their offense like the middle as frequently. So I sort of release my body a little bit and relax because I know that they're not going to be able to set the middle. So I don't have to like wait for that quick attack. Um, and then I watch sort of where the set is directed, obviously where it goes, which pin it goes to, um, or if it goes to the middle. And then after that, I sort of position my body so that I'm in the best possible, um, position to receive a defensive ball. And when I'm watching the hitter, I sort of watch the first thing like I always do is watch where their approach is. So I don't even like watch the ball. As soon as the ball is out of the set of hands, I know it's going, I set up, but then I watch the approach of the hitter. Cause I think that is like the most telling thing about a hitter is where they're going to hit is just watching their approach. Cause if they're approaching, you know, straight up, they might be hitting down the line. If they're approaching more of an angle, they might be hitting more cross. So that's one thing you just have to be aware of. Um, and then the next thing, as soon as they're sort of, uh, cocking back to hit. I then watch their arms, how fast it's going. And I also am noticing whether the block is formed or not, because that can really uh, tell you where the hitter's going to hit or how it's going to hit and where the ball is going to land. So I guess it's just like a bunch of minute um, eye sequence decisions that you have to make as you're watching the play develop. Um, and like I said before, watching video will definitely help with that. Because if you look at video and then you see it on the court, it's sort of familiar to see. So it's not as shocking as when you actually see it live. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of like my eye sequence when I watch hitters or the play develop from passer to setter to hitter. 
Now, what kind of tips would you give younger liberos about even where they set up in base defense? Because I think you've played long enough that you've probably seen the club libero who wants to tippy-toe the attack line and then do like three to five steps in one direction or the other based on the set versus when you watch international volleyball, they're kind of set up and it's just a step and a hop in, in either direction about where they're responsible for, right? So how do you like to set up and kind of what are your demands as far as base defense goes? Um, well, okay, so recently I've been playing uh, the middle back part, oh, nice. so in six. It's a bit different because when I play middle back, I have to be a bit deeper and if they're out of systems and I sort of watch for the ball to go offhand, so I have to be ready to run. But I'd say for any position, wherever you are, I'd say to keep the simplest, most efficient movements as possible. So all these extra steps are just taking away from your ability to effectively dig the ball. So I think just being able to, one, be in a base position for the first quick attack. So you're watching that first offense. But then let's say the ball is out of system and you're ready to receive sort of a pin attack. Then you can adjust your defense and then just be waiting, relaxed, and ready to take a ball that's going to come to you um, because these extra movements are really just taking away from your ability to see what's going on because you're more focused on your position. So I think just keeping a simple, um, maybe one step movement and then being stopped and waiting for the attack, then I think will give you the best probability of actually being able to dig the ball. Awesome. So with you being a six or a middle back defender, you mentioned seams there. So is your instinct to charge the seam or do you like to hang out and, and respect the high off hands? Like what, what kind of goes into your eye sequence as far as like if the middle's going to leave a late seam, what's your decision making typically on that? So yeah, that was actually the decision making is based on the hitter. So for certain hitters, they are, I, this is okay. This is getting a little more into how I like think about things, but Basically, I'll think of like who the hitter is. So if it's a bigger guy who I know likes to bounce more, then I might move up a bit because I know this player is sort of this like, you know, more like arrogant, wants to bounce the ball, you know, get the rah-rah kill. But if it's someone who's smaller, maybe likes to tool and chip and hit those high flat, then I'll stay deep and I'll sort of like relax my legs and be ready to like chase down balls that are going to like touch the seam of the block or off the outside blocker's hand. So I guess it would be more based on the hitter's tennis, and that's how I determine which position I'm going to choose and where I'm going to stand on the court with respect to the hitter. Nice. Very cool. I'm glad we could kind of get into the weeds here about how complex your position is. The other thing I wanted to circle back to was you mentioned how important it is to be relaxed in order to make a dig, which I think is far easier said than done sometimes, especially at the, the speed the ball's traveling at your level. So what are some cues or things you like to do in training so you have the ability to stay calm when balls are just being fired at you? Yeah, so that's actually one of the things I've been working on this past year is just being relaxed on defense. But one of the things I think that I'm still working on developing is having um, my lower body relaxed from my upper body. So what I've been told by my coaches and what has seemed to work is that you need to sort of like have a strong, like strengthen your core, but have everything else relax, your arms relax, your legs relax. And how I do that is I guess I don't know. I don't normally take a, like a split hop or I try not to. I try to just keep everything like still and have everything more like um, condensed to your body instead of like outwards, just waiting for that like big hit. And then once you sort of, once you know where the ball is going, you kind of just have to react and throw an arm out or, you know, throw your hands up to dig that higher ball. Um, so I guess 
being relaxed just takes practice because I'm still trying to develop that skill. Uh, but it also just takes, you know, deliberate practice where you have to think about, you know, am I really being relaxed or am I moving when the ball's being hit? Yeah, that's that's great stuff. And and something I'm learning a lot with our beach national team guys is often digs aren't that pretty, right? You mentioned just throwing an arm at the ball or kind of we encourage our guys to kind of make shapes, right? Because I think the the hands together perfect platform dig doesn't happen once the ball speeds up. So how do you kind of frame the court or what are some cues you would give to athletes about even like breaking your arms or, or do you ever dig with open hands or little tricks like that to just kind of let the ball hit you and go upwards? So yeah, I guess the only, I, I don't know if I have like cues that tell me to do that. It's more of just like an instinctual thing, but literally when I'm in defense and I see someone's hitting, I'm just going to be like, okay, I'm going to get this ball up. And that's all I tell myself. And I think that just saying like, oh, I'm going to get this ball up really helps you because you're not worried about making this perfect day, getting it you know, right to the center so we can run an offense. You're just trying to get the ball up. And I think by doing that, then you're more reactionary instead of just you know trying to guess where the hitter's going to hit. And in doing so, you, I feel that I've really just been able to make more digs and get the ball up instead of just trying to get that perfect dig. So something that's trending right now with liberos that's pretty noticeable is, is just the fact that you guys don't compete offensively, like you're saving a lot of jumps, you're saving a lot of energy, is a lot of liberos are starting to take a little bit more of a leadership role. Do you find yourself doing that because uh, maybe your energy is just higher at the end of the game that you could start thinking more tactically where you're kind of being the captain on serve receive and moving guys around or, or influencing the defense just because you don't have as many matchups to maybe concern yourself with uh, maybe the more high impact sport parts of our sport, like serving, blocking, attacking. Yeah. I'd say I'm very integral in the defensive aspect, like the tactical defensive aspect of our team, because I'll tell blockers where the tendencies for the setters are. I'll remind them of what the attackers like to do. So where they should be set up in their positioning on blocking. And then I'll also remind our defenders what we're doing. Uh, and then I think as a libero, you kind of, have to be this level-headed, grounded guy who's able to rally the team to, you know, fight through the adversity, but also ride the waves of when they're winning. Um, and I think doing that just has a lot to do with managing the emotions on the court. So I know one thing with our team and the teams in the past that I've been on is just that very emotion. We're a very emotional team, and. In doing so, that can be good because we can be very emotional when it's advantageous to us, but also can be disadvantageous when we're sort of down and we're trying to find that fighting spirit. So I think another part of the libero is also managing how people are dealing with their frustration and maybe how they can release that frustration and focus on what they need to do and every point that matters. So I'd say those two aspects, both tactical and emotional, are two things that I've tried to take under my wing and develop as libero within the team. Because you're right, the libero does not have as many, you know, high impact contact um, aspects of the game as many other players do. So I think in doing so, I've just been able to help the team in any sort of capacity that I'm capable of. Now, with everything you're you're prepping before a match, how do you like to make adjustments? Like one example, a really simple one would maybe be. You, you've identified this athlete that they're going to hit sharp balls to five, but because of whether you're, you're defending that ball really well or you're blocking it well, they've made some other shots, right? So how do you go in with a plan and know when to adjust away from tendencies or when to stay on it because when the pressure's on, you have a feeling they're going to go back to it? Yeah, I'd say that's more of an instinctual thing, but it's also what the coaches see because the coaches 
really sort of see everything that goes on, whereas, you know, one physician might just be focused on a certain thing. So we definitely listen to our coaches a lot with those types of adjustments because they often see what goes on and what the patterns are from the players if it's not fitting their tendencies, like you said. Um, but then I'd also – I also during games say like, hey, you know, let's say for a serve, for example – like, I'll say, like, hey, this guy has hit this serve twice. You know, it's not his normal tendency, but he's been exploiting that on us. So I'd shift the reception positioning a little bit. And I think those are the small adjustments that we are capable of making during games. So I'd never say we do, like, big adjustments where we change our entire blocking scheme or whether we're going to commit or front on certain players, whatever that may be. I think it's just, like, small, minute changes that can really have uh, a big impact in the long run. Nice, nice. So just to shift gears again, I just wanted to get into your national team experience. So uh, do you remember the first time you got to represent Canada and, and kind of who was on that squad when you were with our junior national team? The first time I played for the junior national team was at the Norseca tournament in Cuba. Um, so, I mean, there's tons of players on that team. I'm just trying to think of like the Ontario players. There was uh, Xander, um, Max, Tom Sora. Uh, who was on that first year? Wow, I'm blanking. We're Canada-wide. Yeah, it doesn't just have so to be we, Ontario, guys. You can name-drop anybody. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're like Brody Hofer. I'm just trying to think. Brody Hofer, Finn, um, McCarthy, uh, Braden Friesen, Louis Lang. Tons of, uh, you know, OUA stars and, you know, all Canadian stars that are playing in the U sports right now. Um, so, yeah, getting to play with them was pretty special because I think for most of us, that was our first time representing Canada on an international stage. And playing in that environment against other countries was pretty special because after, before every match, we got to hear our national anthem and we knew what we were representing and who we were playing for. And it was just such a great experience to play with those players and to play against the other countries at the tournament. Was there anything that stands out in your mind as far as going to Gatineau? Like, did you have any inter uh, excuse me, interactions with Dan Lewis or Glenn Hogue or any coaches that you really admire? And then when you finally got a chance to work with them, it, something stood out that they could really help you out? I got to talk to Glenn Hogue briefly during the tryouts, and he was sort of the person who was deciding who would make the team and whatnot. But in terms of speaking with Dan Lewis, uh, I haven't really talked to him as much as I'd hoped, just because he's working now more with the national A team. So he's being more involved with them than the junior national team. But I was able to work alongside Shane White, uh, Adam Simak, and Coach Joel Bravo uh, from Brazil. And those three coaches were pretty amazing to work with because they have such a huge wealth of knowledge of the game. And it was great to learn from them and get to know and learn about their different perspectives of the game and what we could do and how we could develop as player, as young players going on to post-secondary and hopefully professional in the future. For you personally, was the feeling around the, around the national team because it looked like there was a team that was announced and went to the Narsika, but then there was a second roster move for Worlds, right? And obviously it didn't match entirely. So did you feel like there was a little bit of pressure to always be performing and, and kind of earning your spot on that team? Yeah. So I was unable to go to the first Narsika tournament in Peru uh, last year because, well, I was in the middle of my season and I had school as well. Um, but then for that second tournament, which was the World Championships, I had to try out amongst the other players who had already played in that Norseca tournament. So that was definitely pressuring because I felt like I had to re-show what I was capable of doing 
and to earn that spot again. Um, thankfully, I was able to do that and play throughout the summer. Um, but yeah, there was definitely some added pressure uh, because there are so many other great liberos in Canada right now, especially in these young ages. So it's definitely pressuring having to go from playing collegiate to then going back to Canada and you know showing what I can do. Now, was there any distractions during the tryout? Because I've heard and got no like there's a lot of coaches around. There's people taking stats. Like, did you as as a receiver ever feel pressure that? You may have, have passed a one. Are you looking around, seeing if anybody's recording that? Or, or do you like to play free during those intense tryouts? Well, yeah, I'd be lying if I said I didn't, you know, think about stats. Um, but honestly, it's just like I try to not think about stats, but more just think about how I can get into my flow. So if I'm out of flow, it, I don't know how to describe flow, but just sort of for the purposes of this conversation, when I'm in flow, I feel that everything's working I'm passing well, I can defend well. So when I'm at a tryout, I normally just think about, hey, how can I get into this flowy mode? Is it my energy? Is it, you know, what I'm doing on reception, defense, whatever it may be? Um, that's sort of more what I try to focus on. But at the same time, there are, yeah, like there are, I'd say, 15 coaches always walking around all the three courts, watching each and every touch, recording everything, and they videotape everything as well. So they're not missing any sort of passing stats or anything like that. Um, so there's definitely some pressure to perform well in every uh, single touch that you make. But at the same time, I try not to focus on that. I try to just focus on getting into my rhythm and how I can be the best that I know I can be. Yeah, it's fascinating, the libero position, because you don't really get to contribute or kind of get yourself out of the tank, right? Like it's almost like being a goalie where if you make a save, you're kind of supposed to, but if you let in a goal, you feel weird where you don't get to mm -hmm. get kills or blocks or aces. So you just mentioned flow. Is there anything you like to do in your mental prep or is anybody kind of giving you some things to work on that you find you can anchor to? Because if you're being targeted and you're not passing well, I'm sure it's a pretty lonely feeling. And with you being the only libero on your squad, like the, the team needs you to perform, right? Yeah. So one thing that's kind of weird, I don't know if other people do this or not, but one thing that I do is I just like pick a song that I'm sort of into at that moment. And I just kind of repeat the song and jam out in my head. And <laughs> that sort of releases any sort of stress and relaxes me for sure. Because then when I go to play, everything should just be automatic. I shouldn't be focusing on, you know, trying to perform skills for my best ability. I could just go and everything's sort of muscle memory. Um, so that's sort of one tactic I use as my mental prep to go into any sort of trial or game or anything like that where there's a lot of pressure put on me. Um, but then I'd say even if I were to make a mistake during games, it would just sort of be like, hey, you know what, that was a good serve or a good attack. You know, I just got to get the next one. There's nothing to worry about. You can't do anything about that. It's happened in the past. You might as well just move on. So I guess just keeping that forward-looking mentality is something that I've been trying to develop, but also trying to hone in as part of my mental situation during the game. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's great stuff. Thanks for sharing that one. So um, obviously taking a lot of your time, you're, you're a busy guy, and thanks for managing the time change and everything like that. So uh, one thing we like to do on the show is just kind of built into a tradition of odd things seem to happen. So going up and down your resume, it looks like you've won everything. You're, you're playing at the highest level with Stanford there. But sometimes some odd or funny stuff happens. So could you maybe share a story to give us a laugh before we let you go? Yeah, well, actually, one thing that just happened last night when we played UCLA. So right now, I've had to set for the past few matches on the Stanford team just because we've been dealing with some internal things. Um, but 
last night we played against UCLA and I got to register my first kill and it was actually on. So I got a block touch after a left side attacked it right over me and someone dug it up and then I went to go set it. But then I did that, you know, sort of like sixth grade girl dump where you just kind of like dump it over with two hands, like a volley dump into the middle of the court. And I didn't think it worked, but I came down and I saw it land and I was like super hyped because I didn't realize I would score. And then you kind of just hear everything around me erupt because we were playing Mips Pavilion, which is our home court. And the, just the crowd erupts and goes wild. And then my uh, opposite Jalen picks me up and like hoists me. And yeah, that was a pretty funny time. But <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So did you guys have to have setter tryouts or how did you get the nod to be the guy? Uh, well, I don't really. Okay. So we've just been dealing with a few injuries. Um, well, quite a number and so they've kind of been going down the ranks of who could set um and it's just unfortunate people have just been getting injured so they kind of just landed on me as like the fourth setter i guess or fifth setter and so i've been setting for these past few games nice credit to your, to your skill over the years that you could just step in and do that after i did you ever set in club like when or high school have you ever set in a match before no, that was my first time was like a week ago. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so pretty interesting experience, but nonetheless kind of worked out. Awesome. Well, hopefully see you as a libero again soon, but if not, maybe the setting thing will work out. I mean, uh, Matias Helser started pretty late in life, and now he's one of the best setters in Canada, so you never know. But That's fair. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time, man. It's exciting to hear about all the things you're doing, and, and nice to kind of get the behind the scenes of how you landed at Stanford and everything that went into that. So thanks for taking the time, and we'll obviously be cheering you on the rest of the way, and hopefully see you with our national team again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. Thanks for listening. If you've made it this far, you're clearly a friend of the show. As a friend of the show, we'd love to connect with you. Please follow Passing Dimes on Instagram. If you think we've earned it, please give us a five-star rating. We'd love to connect with you. Please leave a comment. That could be a good old-fashioned, this show is awesome, you should listen to it. You could ask for future guests. Like if I were to leave a review right now, I'd say please get Sam Schachter, Melissa Himata-Paredes, or Stephen Marr. Or leave a question for a future guest, like who their volleyball role model was, or who's their favorite player to watch live. Most importantly... Remember, the nicest compliment you can give Passing Dimes is by telling your friends about the show. Stay excellent, friends.